Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, and I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're going to open up to Psalm number one. ran out of titles for the sermon series. I uh, came up with a good sermon ti- uh, series title, Summer Psalms. Figured we'd just stick with the numbers for the different messages. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, we are in the heart of vacation season. I hope that you've had a chance at least to take a few days off, whether you've went somewhere or not, and maybe enjoy summertime. It's hard to enjoy when it's, uh, it's swelteringly hot as it's been, but that's better than 70 degrees, whatever it was a couple weeks ago. But the funny thing about vacations in summertime, uh, sometimes they're anything but relaxing. Uh, right? I think we can relate to that. Uh, This is the time of year when there's more daylight than ever, but uh, our schedules fill up to make up for that extra daylight. And and I can remember countless vacations as a kid, uh, from the beach to to theme parks, uh, and and we would be outdoors, out the doors at 8 a.m., and we would be um, out and about until probably 9 p.m., right? It would just be an all-day thing. And and while it wasn't constantly nonstop, uh, it wasn't constant, but, uh, you know, it it was very busy. And it was, it was far from uh, relaxing, I think you could say. But, you know, Disney World and places like that, they're a special kind of vacation. At the end of the day, you, you feel like you've been trampled by all the people you've been around, all the thousands of people you feel like they've all ran over, walked over you individually. But, but regardless of where you vacate and, and how you vacate, um, even if you're just taking time off and just staying at home, summertime will wear you out. Uh, it, it'll, it'll, it'll wear you out in a good way. In a good way, though, um, as stressful as all the planning can be, and as full as the schedule can get, summertime—you know, time off, uh, time off stress—is still not as bad as being stressed out at work, being stressed out in a busy time of year that's just kind of pulling from you and taking from you. Being off uh, the clock is still better than, than being on, even if it is busy. Uh, still, though. Um, even time off in today's world really isn't time off. I think we can kind of get what we're talking about there. Uh, we, we might not be working, we might, might not be grinding away, but we're still going and we're still running and we're still doing, and that still takes a lot of energy. Uh, nothing wrong with those things. Uh, we, you know, we should, if we got the strength, we should be as busy as we can be, uh, right? But, but it does bring to mind that maybe we could use a different kind of vacation uh, where we actually get a thing called rest, which is rare in today's world, right? We get days off and we have to be as busy as we can because we rarely get days off. So there isn't a lot of rest involved uh, in days off. But we, we may not think we need rest, uh, but our bodies do. Uh, and and maybe, maybe you think you don't need any rest, but I would argue uh, our modern world, as much as it tells us to push and push and push and go and go and go, I think all of us, I think all of us could use rest for our mind and for our souls, we're so wound tight. Uh, our, our minds are always blast processing all the time. Uh, our world has, has taken to heightened awareness for mental health in recent years, and that's a good thing. Uh, and, and I think in reality, you know, even when we're off the clock, we're still bouncing off the wall. Our agendas are full. Our planners are full. Our hands are full. Our arms are full. Our minds are full. So I think it would be beneficial to use some summer Sundays the next few weeks as July, uh, that July gives us to especially attend to our mind and attend to our souls. Uh, You may not have time to let yourself breathe or rest with so much to do, but hopefully these summer Sundays uh, will give you an outlet to consider and a vehicle to carry some of the thoughts that I'm sure you have that we'll see reflected in Scripture. So hopefully uh, these messages will inspire you to pause and take some time to yourself, like actual measurable time to yourself. Uh, I don't, it might be hard to find some time, but I, I think hopefully you'll be inspired to, to find some. 
Hopefully that these Sunday mornings will inspire you to take some more time throughout the week and listen to your own heart, to listen to what your soul is in need of the most. And, and we're all so used to having to check with other people as to whether we are free to do X, Y, and Z, but we hardly ever check with our own hearts. We hardly ever check with ourselves. Even if we want to do something, it could be that we need to do something else. There's a lot of things I want to do, but when I listen to my soul and listen to my mind, I realize there's some more important things that I need to do that I don't all the time give myself the room to think about. So you won't arrive at that sort of clarity unless you take some time to think. And hopefully you'll at least take 40 minutes or so on these Sunday mornings to think about these things. So luckily for us as Christians, as believers, we have an entire book of the Bible that literally exists for this purpose, to give you an outlet and a vehicle to arrive at rest for your souls, rest for your minds, and helps you wrestle through the things that may be on your mind. So today is week one in a series we're calling Summer Psalms, which are going to feature four, uh, four different psalms being spotlighted, and we'll call in some verses from some other psalms along the way. But we're going to focus on four psalms that I think stand above the rest. And there's 150, so that means that these four must be pretty special, at least to me, I think they are. Um, but just to give you a little bit of information about the psalms, because I think it's good to know what we're getting into uh, on a broad and, and over the air, uh, over the land kind of way, uh, the psalms are actually a collection of ancient poems songs and prayers. So the Psalms are written by a various number of authors. The Psalms, are, it's much like a hymn book, much like a, a, a book of poems that you may have on your shelf at home, uh, but they're not all the same type of poetry. Some of them, again, are poems, some are songs, some are prayers, but they're all written in lyrical Hebrew, as in they're all set to a beat. They're all set to a poetic fashion. So that's why they're different than the other books of the Bible. And that's why most of your English Bibles you know, make them look indented and make them look like a poem would look in an English uh, textbook that you may have had, or maybe a poem, a book of poetry, or a music book that you have. They indent the, the stanzas to show that these are not written in prose. They're not written to be a story. They're written to be uh, lyrical. They're written to be poems or songs or prayers. Uh, they were written by a few people across a few hundred, hundred of years. So let, really from around 1,000 uh, B.C. to around um, 800 B.C., these, these songs Psalms were written. There's a few that were from before and from after. Most of them were written in that two or three hundred year uh, period um, around a thousand uh, BC. And they give us a snapshot and a window into the hearts and minds of believers from about 3,000 years ago, which is what is really remarkable. They were written 3,000 years ago. You may like songs from the 90s or the 80s or even farther back. You may be you know, a real artsy person. You like to listen to some stuff from you know, the, the great composers from hundreds of years ago. But, but can you imagine um, listening to music from 3,000 years Ago. Now, we, we can't set these to music like they were set to in ancient days. A lot of them weren't set to music, but the way the Hebrew poetry uh, came together, it's not as rhythmic as our own English poetry would be. So we might not get the sense of the lyrics as they were originally in, in, written in the Hebrew language. Uh, but, but can you just imagine that we're holding a document, that, a collection of documents from 3,000 years ago. Uh, and just like your favorite song from your favorite band from 20, 30, 40 years ago speaks to you, uh, I'd, I'd argue there are some favorite songs or favorite poems from a few artists 3,000 years ago that are just as powerful, more powerful 
than maybe anything you've heard before. So again, there's 150 in this collection, but they really all fit into about four categories. So to reduce it down the best we can, there are psalms of devotions, praises, laments, and anthems. So the devotional psalms uh, teach some kind of lesson. So these were intended to be confessed in worship. These are much like the creeds that you may have uh, recited in churches. These are confessional. They, they teach some lesson, but they were written uh, as an expression of someone's faith in God, meant to lead others in confessing their faith and learning how to apply their faith. So they are very devotional. And in in, in, in the fact of, of the matter is, they help us find a, a greater connection to God, which is what we'll be talking about today specifically. Uh, the praise psalms are just that. They're songs. They're prayers of thanksgiving. Pretty simple to understand those. Laments are emotional cries or emotional confessions from a wearied soul. There are some amazing, powerful, heartfelt, heartfelt psalms uh, where the writer cries out from agony, from losing a loved one to going through some great loss or some great battle or some great tragedy. Uh, they, they, we we read in those psalms a longing for answers and understanding. Sometimes there's this open-endedness to those psalms that we'll look at in a few weeks. Then there are anthems. Anthems, much like you, you might be familiar with a national anthem. Anthems were for the nation of Israel to sing together, to recite together. Uh, the, you know, very political in, 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 in nature, very national-minded, nationalistic in nature, uh, declaring their trust in God. And these psalms really look back at the history of Israel and talk about what he's done before and what he can do again. And they were for holidays, they were for festival and for special worship services uh, specifically. So... We'll end up looking at one of each of these, but I want to focus on what all the Psalms do uniquely. Um, all four of the categories all do something that uh, is more unique, uh, more, only found in Psalms and, and, and no other part of the Scriptures. The Psalms are written by real people with real emotions, and they're so raw that they're written into the text. So the Psalms, we read about people on super highs, and we read about people in super lows, but they were originally inspired to a few people. They were inspired in the hearts of a few individuals so that they might inspire every reader and every hearer from time to come. So in the Psalms, we get to see people open up about, about real life issues, real life victories, and real life losses. And we see that God inspired these people so that we might find our own voice and find something to help carry our own emotions all of these years later. God did something in the hearts of a few of Israel's spiritual leaders. Now, there, there, there's uh, several different authors, but most of them, as in like 90% of the Psalms, are written by one of three people. King David, Asaph, who was a musician of his day under King David and, and the generation after, and a choir group or a worship band called the Sons of Korah, which was kind of a revolving door, much like a, a band from your time might still exist today, but only three of the people or three of the four aren't the original cast. The Sons of Korah was a group of worship leaders or a group of worship, uh, a band in ancient Israel that kind of all, you know, kind of represented a certain family, the people of Korah, that would kind of walk in 
in and out of the door. So uh, there's a lot of examples there we could pull from. So King David, Asaph, and the sons of Korah. We, we hear David call out to God on the highest of mountains and the lowest of valleys. We, we hear David really vent to God and, and argue with God in his own mind. Uh, we re- read Asaph wrestle with life's greatest challenges and try to get his arms around God's promises. Uh, The sons of Korah lead us in psalms of praise and also in laments of sorrow and heaviness. I think that summertime is especially a good time to read and study the psalms because they give us a window into the souls and minds and hearts of believers just like us. And you may say, well, I don't know about Asaph or the sons of Korah, but, you know, I'm not a king, but you'd be surprised. You may relate to King David more than you realize. These people took the time to write out and express their thoughts, and in doing so, they were connecting with God, they were fellowshipping with God, the Creator, and the Lord of their lives. So the very fact that God meant for these to be in Scripture— it's what makes them very unique. These are not some uh, a story of Israel's greatest victories or a lesson of their losses. These are real people with real life issues, good and bad situations, going to God and just talking to God about how they're trying to navigate some of life's challenges or some of life's obstacles or opportunities. The very fact that God meant for these to be in Scripture tells us that God loves to hear from us. God loves, the number one reason why I think the Psalms are in the Bible, it's that God loves to hear from His people. He values what you have to say to Him, as in He loves hearing from you, and He wants you to know you can confide in Him. You can talk to Him. You can find refuge in Him. You can bring everything to Him, even if the things that you say are are in line with him and his will. For instance, there's some psalms where David literally prays for God to take out his enemies. We know from the New Testament that should never be a prayer or Christian praise. We should never ask God to hurt someone, right? We know that's not right. But David freely expressed God, literally break their teeth off in their mouth, I mean, is some of the things that he asked for, which is really graphic. But he was very angry. He was very low. He was very emotional. It was okay for him to talk talk to God about those things. Now, we don't go quoting those verses as some sort of promise for the real life, for our real world application, right? Of course, we understand them in their context. Those sorts of examples invite us to bring our hearts to God, the good and the bad and the ugly. We bring our thoughts to him because we know he is bigger than them and he is Lord over them and he can show us what to do with them. Whether it be glorifying him because of a great victory, trusting in him during a great hardship, leaning on him when everything else is vanishing beneath us, leading us to live for him when tempted tempted and distracted by the world, the Psalms teach us a new language, a language of worship. And I I know that might sound very churchy, sound very preachery to say, but, but it's real. The Psalms teach us a new language, a language that you really have to learn A language of focusing on God, showing us that we too can bring anything on our minds to God, and in Him we can find rest and refuge and truth and grace. It's kind of like this, and it's why I think you can benefit from studying the Psalms. Just like professional singers, they have to exercise their voices. They may have awesome and beautiful voices, but they don't just wake up with that voice. They have to exercise it. They have to get iron out some kinks that, that, that just develop over time. 
writers can't just pick up a pen and start streaming out a mindful of gold. They have to prepare for it, and they have to workshop. They have to work out their mental process. Obviously, any type of, of, of activity requires practice and preparation from the job that you do to someone on an athletic field. It takes practice and preparation and concentration. It takes repetition. And the same is true for you spiritually. If we want to be as close to God as we can be, it's going to require devotion and habits and practices of spiritual discipline. And listen, I get it. And God gets it. We're a busy people. We want to just come to church and be, you know, someone to wave a wand over us and for us to feel spiritual and to feel full. And, and maybe that works for some people, but I promise you this, it only works briefly. You can go to the greatest church service you could ever imagine, as traditional or as contemporary, as, as ancient or modern as it could be. It could be the best songs that you could ever pick out and the best sermon that fits you or talks about them like you want it to. But I promise you this, as full as you may get vicariously, as in as warm as you can get from someone else's fire, that is not sufficient for what you need beyond a few hours on a Sunday. If we want to be as close to God as we can be, it's going to take some devotion. It's going to take some spiritual practices and some discipline. And honestly, Psalm just invites us to start talking to God. And hopefully we'll learn that we can bring our hearts and bring our souls to him. And, and, and get, listen, God gets it. I get it. Summertime does not give us much time to take off. If we're going to get to our, all, of our, all that's on our calendars, we got to go, 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 go. And we don't have a lot of time to take, devote to ourselves, especially to, 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 to God. Our hands are full, our hopes and our dreams are plenty. If we just stop and look in the mirror, though, and check our temperature and, and, and observe what could use some R&R, &R. Uh, if we look deeper than what our eyes can see and listen closer past what our ears can hear, we will detect that we need to spend some time processing what's going on in our hearts and t talking to our Maker, our Heavenly Father, about what's going on inside. So, so if you've been out in this heat, you know that no matter how much day daylight there is uh, and how much free time you have, if you don't stay hydrated, uh, you're going to be pretty miserable. We all understand that. And I don't think it's far-fetched to say, and this isn't a judgment toward anybody, this is just my own observation. Spiritually speaking, a lot of us are dehydrated and malnourished. Spiritually speaking, a lot of us are, are not as, as hydrated as we should be. And the Psalms will help you stay refreshed and be restored. The, psalmist, uh, the Psalms remind us of real life from what really matters to real troubles. They will help us to see our real God over us who wants to make a real difference in our lives. So maybe not the most famous psalm, but certainly one of the most well-known ones is the first one. I don't know if it's because it's first, or I don't know if it's first because it's important. Nonetheless, it's here in front of us. So uh, in just a few verses, this psalm, a devotional psalm, offers a ton of wisdom and a sobering perspective on life. And, and talk about a, space, a place for spiritual hydration and nourishment. Look no further than psalm number one. Uh, so follow along with me as we read psalm number one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in due season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish, or literally be lost forever. It may be short, it may offer a simple prognosis of life, but it's undeniably insightful and convicting. Uh, we don't know the author of this psalm. Many assume that those without special attribution are David's own thoughts and David's own words, which it, it, fits, into that, it, it fits into the type that he would write. Uh, the psalm falls into the devotional category, which serves as a form of confession, something that people would have recited in worship, but something that come from somebody who wrestled through their own lives and arrived at a place where they had clarity and had a, a really good grasp on what was right and what wasn't right. So taking it back to its inspiration when David first wrote it, I imagine David must have been thinking to himself, where is true blessedness found? Where are true blessings found? He must have been asking the question or contemplating and musing the question, where does our inner strength and joy and peace come from? And the reason why I think it's very unique that David, the king, ask these questions and begin dwelling on these questions and begin seeking out the answers to these questions, is you would think David, being the king of Israel, you would think, why would David ever wonder where true blessings are found? This is the guy that killed the giant. This is the guy that was the man after God's own heart. This is the guy that was the king of his world. This is the guy that had everything you could ever ask for. Why would he ever wonder where blessings are found? Why would he ever ask the question, where does strength and peace and joy come from? Didn't he have plenty of those things? This is in some ways a confession that David, even David, the most successful, powerful, and prosperous man of his day, he wasn't always satisfied with life. Now, now listen, maybe you're at a place where you're open and open about how you're not satisfied. Maybe you're at a place where you feel like you can't be open about it because it looks like you should be satisfied. Because on the outside, everything's perfect, but the inside, for you, it's just not where it should be. And you don't know how to say that because you don't want to be called ungrateful or you don't want to be, you know, whatever people might would say. Maybe you're at a place where it looks like things should be right, but inside things aren't right. That's where David was at. Even, all, even though all appeared to be great, all wasn't so great inside of him. So we can tell by David, by some of David's choices across his life, that, that he wasn't always where he needed to be. He wasn't always where he wanted to be personally. As a young man, he was given the king's daughter for marriage. He was a celebrated giant killer. And he had so much promise that he found himself running for his life. He spent years of his young adult life on the run as a fugitive. As an older uh, man, he similarly went down that path. But instead of allowing the chaos to funnel him closer to God, he drifted away from God. He compromised his faith and convictions trying to save his own skin a number of times. He endangered people that he was close to, looking out for himself. Later in life, David, at the height of his power, threw it all away over an evening of pleasure. Think about that. He had everything that he could want, but he thought that he needed one more thing. All may have seemed right for David, but even as king, he was in a dark place and pursued the wrong sources to find relief. And, and on both ends of his life, as a young adult and as an older man, his decisions cost him the best that God had for him. 
Both instances led him to the cave in the wilderness after being driven from his comforts. And we don't know exactly when, uh, when David may have written this psalm, but it fits into either season of his life where he had made some poor choices. And seeking out a life full of blessings, he came up empty, yet in his emptiness, he found God's fullness. Now, David, remember the story of David, he kills Goliath, he gets Saul's daughter in marriage, Saul becomes jealous of him. Instead of David taking refuge in God, David begins trying to play games and, and tries, to, you know, tries to, to, to fend for himself. Uh, then he goes and lies to some priests and gets the entire village of priests killed because he lied to them about Saul sending him on a mission, but Saul's literally trying to hunt him down and kill him. So David ends up being on wanted posters. David ends up losing his family, losing his place as the, as the future king, being on the run from Saul, literally Saul declares war, takes the entire army of Israel, begins chasing David down. And David begins to spend years of his life on the run. Specifically, he takes refuge in the caves of Adullam. And it was during this time of David's life that there's something important that, that we can learn from. It says that while he was there, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So David began to acquire followers of other people who were fugitives and vagabonds, people that were, that were in very dire straits. David began to be some sort of a spiritual leader, a wearied soul, the former prince of Israel, the former giant killer, now on the run, making a, a community in the wilderness, hanging out in the caves of Israel. And all of these men in distress and in debt and bitter in soul, former people who had, they had killed people, they had committed crimes, they began following. David. Now you know these men as David's mighty men, but they weren't mighty always. They were spiritually broken people. They were people trying to find out if there was a God out there that loved them, and there was a people trying to find out if there was a place for them in the story of God. And their story started with David, who as broken as they were, began wrestling through where is true blessedness found? Where is true joy and peace found? Where is real purpose found? It says that place was called the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. No doubt after much contemplation and dedication, after turning to the Lord, he arrived at the conclusion that we read in these verses. Verse 1 starts off with those words, blessed is the man or blessed is the one. And he makes a declarative contrasting statement over where blessings aren't found and where they are found. The word blessedness, you've heard this before, but the word can also be translated and should be translated happiness. So blessed is the man, or happy is the one. I know it may seem a little reductive and over, uh, overstepping bounds for someone that doesn't know you as well as you know you to declare where you can find happiness, but David dares to, the Bible dares to, and this is very important. For the next five minutes, please, please, please tune in if you've, if you've leaned away. We often think the Bible is only interested in, interested in, that God is only interested in telling us the difference between truth and fiction. We often imagine that God wants us to know what's true, what's false, and, and how the universe works. And here's what I know about you and, and what basically is true about everyone. None of us, none of us are really going about in this life trying to figure out what's true versus what's false. That's not what drives you. Your ambition every morning is not to wake up and think, I got to figure out what's true and what isn't true. We care about what's true, 
But none of us are driven by what some call a truth quest. We don't get up every day determined to distinguish truth from fantasy. Ultimately, though, all of us are trying to find happiness. We're not on a truth quest, but we are on a happiness quest. We are looking for and longing for and trying to find happiness. We cling to certain things as truth and champion things and campaign for those things because we feel like that's where our happiness is found. And the reason we get so worked up about so much in this life and the reason we even try to control others is because we mostly exclusively care about ourselves and the world working for us. You you know why politics is such a hot-button issue and why literally people get so hostile about some things that are really mundane in the grand scheme of life? Because we believe, and we're we're instigated by pundits and commentators, we believe our happiness is on the line. And we believe what makes us happy and our ideal way of life is threatened if the certain people that we like don't get in control of, of our country and of our world. We often so sanctimoniously insist we're doing it in the name of truth, But if we're being honest, and let's be honest, we're just really caring about what makes us happy. And we want what makes us happy ruling the world because if it makes us happy, we don't really care about everybody else. Don't get me wrong. It's completely okay that that's what you're after. It's completely okay that you're on a quest for happiness. I just think we need to admit it. And I think the main reason why I, I feel like this is such an important breakthrough for us to experience is this. The Bible, God's Word, isn't just here to tell you what's true, although it does that very well. The Bible is here to show us where true happiness is found. One more. The Bible shows us where true happiness is found, but it also warns us where it is not and never will be found. We often turn away from the Bible because we disagree with its assertion of truth. We don't like someone telling us what to believe. However, we might be interested in in what it tells us about happiness and how it tells us that we can find happiness. And I, I bet that would intrigue some of you. Something in all of us springs to life at the notion that happiness might actually be achievable and sustainable. Now, maybe you know this, but I have a hunch that it might be new to some people. We often imagine, we've been told that God is only interested in, and God is most interested in, us knowing and believing and behaving the right way for the sake of what's right and for the sake of what's true. We're often raised in a very sterile environment when it comes to God. The structure we're taught to relate to God, all that lends itself to seeing God as trying to out-truth us, trying to categorize our minds with what's right, what's wrong, what we should do and shouldn't do, as if that's all he cares about. But the truth is... God is as interested in, and I would argue he is more interested in, us finding true happiness. Yeah, he cares about what's true. And yes, he wants you to know what's true. But the reason he wants you to know what truth is, is because his biggest priority, his greatest desire, is that you might find true blessedness, true happiness. Make no mistake, what God, where God says true happiness is found is miles away from our own intuition and miles away from the secular experts of the, that will point us to, in the direction of whatever they say will give us happiness. 
that's why the distinction between truth and what isn't true is important. Still, though, I think hearing that God cares about our happiness and wants us to find happiness and feel happiness moves God from an impersonal category to a deeply personal one, don't you? It moves God from being just some, you know, dead religious figure to being an actual heavenly father that wants us to be happy. For the way of many of us are introduced to God and continually led to, to approach God, Psalm 1 could benefit from you maybe writing in the margins or putting on a post-it note that believe it or not, God wants you to be. And he wants you to feel happy. God is not just interested in you being a Xerox copy of what his word already says. He doesn't just want you to know what's true and repeat what's true. He wants you to benefit from what's true. He wants to bless you with what's true and through what's true. And the direct way that his truth is meant and intended to benefit us is to make you happy. Now, before David tells us the secret to happiness, how God wants to lead us into happiness, he wants us to know what routes not to take. Moving ever so slowly as we're inclined, verse number one goes on to say that blessed is the one, happy is the one, who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked, does not stand in the path of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scornful. So I want to break this down very quickly. The Hebrew word ungodly, or often translated as wickedness, is a word we seldom read in the Bible. When it shows up, it's usually coupled with a pretty ominous judgment. Most famously, when God is responding to Solomon's dedication prayer, God uses this word ungodly or wickedness by saying, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Same word as your Bibles have in, in Psalm 1-1. Ungodly, wicked, same, same word. It's interesting that the word wicked is distinct from the word sinful. Obviously connected, and I don't usually encourage to make a big deal about two words that pretty much are the same, but in this instance, it does matter. Wicked, according to the Hebrew text, means to be guilty of immoral or illegal action, something criminally done against God's law. Now, obviously, this includes things that we deem illegal by our own laws of our own land, but generally, that's in line with what God says is right or wrong. But this specifically is in reference to God's law. And this is one of those moments... This is one of those moments where I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because Jesus came along and said, listen, y'all, 600 commandments is a lot. You think there's just 10? Whew. 600 commandments, whole lot of commandments, right? You barely know 10 of them, right? And you don't really do that well with them, let's be honest. 600 commandments, that's a whole lot of laws. But, but, but hey, I'm going to help y'all out. And I'm going to reduce those down to just two. And I know we roll our eyes and think, how could you possibly reduce 600 down to two? Jesus did it. So if Jesus did it, the guy who inspired the original 600, I'm okay with that. I'm going to go with that, and I'm going to be thankful for that. <laughs> doesn't make them any easier to live out. It just makes them simpler to understand. So Jesus famously said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it as in you can't have one without the other. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the, all the rest. All the other laws and all the other things the prophets say. So wickedness, listen here. Wickedness is not confined to some sinister, diabolical, defiant crime. It's anything done in the absence of love. 
Now, the reason why we don't like this is because this convicts us more. Because I like people to say wickedness is people who commit X, Y, and Z crime because I've never committed those crimes and probably won't by the grace of God. But I am guilty of being unloving. And I don't like when people make it this general. <laughs> I don't know about y'all. Wickedness is anything done in the absence of love. So, so for, the, for the context, let's put it this way. Happiness will never be found on unloving grounds. Want to say that with me? Happiness will never be found on unloving grounds, as in anything done in an act of unloving someone. As in, if your gut says to do it, your flesh says to do it, the world says to do it, if it tells us that to be happy, we should do X, Y, and Z, but that requires you to do something unloving towards someone, something that attempts to use them or manipulate them or harm them or isolate them or damage your relationship with them, here's what God's Word says. You will never find true, lasting happiness anywhere near that scenario. I don't care if they agree with you to do it with you. If it's not according to what God says is love and not versus what's unloving, you will never find lasting happiness there. So let me say this. If you're wondering why you just can't find happiness and your life is full of ongoing decisions wherein you are not acting out of love towards God and those around you, then think, then I think we found your problem. And if this notion frustrates you, because you just can't accept that you're the one costing you happiness because you keep doing what you want to do, yet it doesn't work out for you. You keep doing things that you want to do and other people keep getting in the way. Could I, could I invite you and could I ask you that that frustration you might have right now, that somehow, some way that you're the one that's costing you happiness? Could I say that maybe you should let your frustration be an invitation to lean into God's inspiration? Briefly, the other two. The ways of sinners refers to anything against God's will. Those that stand in the path of a way of sinners, which we've already determined God wants us to be happy. So God's will is meant for us to find happiness. So God's will reminds us of God's best. So to go against God's will and God's best is to go against our own good. Pretty easy rationale, isn't it? If God's will is for our best and we go against God's will, then we go against God's best and it's against our good. James defines sin like this. The best definition of sin you can find. Whoever knows the right and the good thing to do and doesn't do it, that's sin. I don't need a verse saying, people say, hey, Justin, is this sin? Let me ask you this. Is it good for you in the relationship you're in as you're trying to love God and love the people around you? Is it going to be good for you? Well, well no, I want to know, does the Bible say I can't do it? Listen, if that's your question, we already got a problem. This is James, the brother of Jesus, so don't look at me. If you know what good and what is right, and what falls in line of God's will for you, and God's best for you, and what's loving God, and loving the ones around you, if you can't do the thing you want to do, in the name of loving God, and loving your brother or sister, then you shouldn't do it, and I don't care if there's a verse for it, or against it. James says, if you know what's good, and what's right, and you don't do it, that's sin, and doesn't it just cause so much damage when you ignore that simple commandment? Absolutely. Lastly, the seat of scoffers. Scoffers speaks of our tendency to mock any notion that somebody knows what's best for us besides us. 
How can God know what's good for me better than I know what's good for me? You know, I ultimately think what these three points do is they confront our nature to be our own God. We all want to call our own shots. We all want to be in control. And while these verses don't force you to change anything about you, listen, nothing about this message or these verses force you to do anything. You can scoff at them and you can walk away from them and you can keep doing you. But these verses will always loom over you. Every time you fail to find happiness and sustain happiness and can't remain happy, these verses will eat at us because as we continue along being unhappy, they continue to point us in the right direction. Listen, that's what I mean by allowing your frustration to be an imitation to find inspiration because so many of us, we get angry when we can't find happiness. We want it so badly. And it aggravates us to be told we're doing life wrong, doesn't it? But listen, don't hear me as a preacher trying to deride you from living a different way than God says you should or I think you should. Don't hear me as your parent or your grandparent nitpicking your decisions over your shoulder. This is a 3,000-year-old devotion written by a man who went down all these roads, who indulged his flesh, who did life his way, disregarded what anyone else thought he should do, and he learned what all of us have learned, that, that God is not over us, trying to judge us and scold us at the first sign of disobedience, that God is our Heavenly Father who so deeply and genuinely wants us to be happy and He wants to fill our lives with blessing, not material things, but spiritual, a vibrant relationship we can find with Him. Happy is the one who doesn't follow the wicked course of this world, who doesn't stand in line with sinners making senseless decisions as the rest of the world does, who doesn't sit with the scoffers and refuses to listen to anybody else. Advice on life. Blessed is the one who does what verse 2 says. Delights in the law of the Lord. In the law he meditates day and night. Now the word law is a, is, a, is a big Hebrew word that literally means God's covenant. It doesn't just mean the law of Ten Commandments. It means God's covenant with you. God's covenant with Israel, which is God's covenant with you. This is God's covenant. God's covenant pretty much says this. I love you. Sin has broken you. Trust me, and I'll show you how to live a happy life. I know that's a lot of the Bible reduced down to one picture, but just follow me. God's covenant with you is, I love you. Sin has broken you, and I fixed it. I put my son on the cross to fix it for you. I love you. Sin has broken you. Trust me, and I'll show you how to live a happy life. A peaceful, content, and joyful life. What does it mean to delight in? What does it mean to meditate on? Delight in means that you listen to your longing. Your heart has a longing. Your heart wants something. It wants to be happy. As you long for happiness, look to the Lord and begin to let go of everything else. Look to Him. Meditate means to repeat it to self to, until it echoes in your soul. I heard someone say it before. To delight in and meditate on means to go into God's Word wide-eyed. Y'all know the old saying, wide-eyed, as in you're walking in, you're full of amazement, you're full of wonder, you are so, um, you're so excited for what might be around the corner. Go into God's Word, expecting to find the most amazing revelatory promises and truth from God to you. 
Psalm 19 says it's like honey. It's like the sweetest thing you could eat. That's how we should go into God's Word and go into any time that we hear a message from God's Word, a devotion on God's Word, prayer time with our loved ones around God's Word, expecting to find the greatest treasure in Him, the greatest happiness from Him. Jesus described the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and bought that field. Does this seem crazy to you? Does this seem crazy to you that God's will for you and God's best for you is such a great treasure that if you had to give up everything else you had, you would find more happiness in doing that than not? Does that seem threatening to you? Does that seem uncomfortable to you? Because if it does, it tells me you haven't let go. You haven't delighted in God's Word. You haven't meditated on God's Word. It tells me that you're still trying to do it the other ways. And the other ways, as we've seen proven, don't work. What if, what if you, stepping back from your life, observe your frustration, your unhappiness that you deal with again again? Consider that God actually has your best in mind, that he alone can break through the fallen bubble that we're in to shine his light and to lead us where we want to be. Psalm 1, the Bible reveals to us that's why Jesus came to live and to die, to make this personal to us. That what, what, that what verse 3 describes, that we can be like a tree planted by rivers of living water that brings forth in due season, that leaf don't wither, that whatever he does shall prosper, that, that we can be like the tree planted and producing and protected and prospering. We can be like this where our joy and our happiness flows from the inside out. Don't you see the scenario? The joy does not come from the material things around the tree. It comes from the sustenance coming from the ground. So anybody, ever, anybody that quotes verse 3 at you and says, you've got, you've got to have this thing from the world to make you happy. Verse 3 says, no, no, no. The tree gets its sustenance from its roots. From the unseen immaterial of this world. Do you see, the, you see the message? This is why Jesus stood up at a festival one day and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. The ancient Hebrews were fascinated with water that came out of the secret parts of the earth. When they would find a spring coming out of the rocks, they were amazed by that. Because they thought the water from the inside, unseen parts of the earth had some sort of spiritual power. That picture is the, what Jesus promises to put in our hearts and bring into our souls. That's the joy. That's the happiness that Psalm 1 promises us. Blessed is the one who doesn't do it the way the world says to do it. Who doesn't walk the way of wickedness, the path of sinners, or in the seat of the scornful. But delights in God and his word and meditates on what God has said to them and over them. That's the person just fill with this living water. So here's the two questions that remain over you today. Number one, will we finally admit that happiness is not found outside of God's will? You can disagree with me. You can disagree with every preacher that's ever preached this for the last thousands of years. But in front of us is still going to be a 3,000-year-old devotion by a, written by a king sitting in a cave who had lost everything that he could ever count as happiness. 
realizing that there was something greater available to him. Will we finally admit that happiness is not found outside of God's will? Number two, will we come to God's word? As in, will you come to the avenues that you hear God's word? Will you show up at church on Sunday? Will you show up to our different Bible studies? Will you get together with your family day after day? Will you gather with God privately morning and evening? Will you do what you should do throughout the day, throughout the week? Will you go to God's word wide-eyed, expecting to find the pathway to true happiness? Turning away from the other avenues that you may have tempting you. Will you turn to God's word wide-eyed, and will you follow what you find? Will you follow the path that you find? There are relationships you will never have. There are relationships that will never be what they can be. There are opportunities that you'll never have or opportunities you'll never make the most of. There are purposes that you'll never arrive at or understand until you learn and trust that God has your best in mind, that God wants to make you happy, that God wants to bless you. You will never arrive at those blessings unless we agree to him and follow his terms. And you know what he's asking for? Our trust. That we might delight most in him. And I promise you, nobody has ever regretted tapping into the living water that God promises you. No one has ever said, I don't want to be what verse 3 describes. I don't want to be like that, that, that tree planted by rivers of living water being nourished from the inside out. No one has ever said, I don't want that. No one has ever said, I'd rather be like the wicked that are blown away by the, like the, by the wind. No one has ever said that. No one has ever said, I want to be like the, the weeds that just get chopped away and blown away. Everybody wants to be happy, though. And if you want true happiness, don't take it from me. Take it from the Bible, God's Word. Take it from Jesus who said, I come to this earth to give you what you are so desperate for. Blessed is the one who delights in God in His Word and meditates it on it day and night. They will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. If you want happiness, real, sustainable happiness, God says, come to me. I love you. Sin has broken you. But I can fix it. I have fixed it. Trust me. And I'll show you where happiness is found. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this simple prescription that you've given us. This simple pathway you've laid out in front of us. Lord, everybody here wants to be happy. Nobody wakes up and says, hey, I don't, I don't want to be happy today. Lord, maybe a lot of us haven't ever been taught or trained to, to relate to you like this. Maybe we only think that you care about us knowing what's right and repeating what's right and, and, and doing what's right. And yet you care about those things. You care about those things because you love us and want us to be happy. And it's important that this, this book about the emotions and these real life scenarios of real people, the book starts out with a, a prescription of how to find happiness. Happy is the one who delights in God, who comes to him wide-eyed and expecting, who says, I've tried every other avenue and every other reservoir and every other source, and there isn't anything there. I want what God provides. Lord, I pray that you would break through that one that questions whether you care about them being happy or not, that you, you break through that heart that is just 
hard and, and, and cold from religion. Maybe that one that has tried every avenue in the world and, and they would admit today they aren't happy and they haven't been happy and they've been looking for happiness in every other place that it could possibly be found and they haven't found it. But you promise them, you promise them that if they delight in you and they meditate on you and they follow you, they can find it. They can find it. Lord, I pray that if anybody needs to repent of going about life in the wrong way, a way that would prevent them from having this happiness, Lord, that you would provide them that place to do it today. That all of us could stand on these grounds today, knowing that you have offered us something that we cannot find any other way. Happiness from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.